All right, we're live and we're rolling and welcome to The Real Venture. If you're new here, welcome. Let me break down what this show is all about. We are a community built for young entrepreneurs by young entrepreneurs with the sole mission of inspiring the next generation, our generation, to turn their crazy idea into a business. I'm your host, Peyton. And I am your co-host, Luke. And we are so excited to continue to grow this platform as we talk to other successful founders about their successes and together as a community, figure out the next step in our own entrepreneurial journey. The only thing I'm going to need you to do before we get going is hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Let's dive into today's topic. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Why don't we just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Peyton. Um, so I, I'm an entrepreneur, but I was kind of born and raised in an entrepreneurial family. My, uh, my dad started a, a small business in 1982. It's an industrial distributor, and we sell uh, rubber and plastic products into the manufacturing marketplace. Um, I didn't really always plan to work for him, but wound up working for my dad in 2009 out of college with a finance degree and background in finance and accounting. Uh, and then the story got weird because all of my, I have three sisters, no brothers. My brother-in-law's all joined the family company, um, kind of one at a time. And so in 2012, found myself working with my brother-in-laws in a little small business um, scenario and can be a little awkward, but we, we figured it out and we started working on the business instead of in it and innovating my dad's company. Um, it's a long story, but the short of it is through that process, we, we've, come up with two other companies, kind of the entrepreneurial spirit. So we have Shelfware, which is the company I run. Uh, it's, a, it's a B2B industrial automation, supply chain automation tool that uses smart labels and RFID technology to track product consumption and then report that consumption back to suppliers in real time. And then my, my other brother-in-law runs a B2C company. It's really based through leveraging our supply chain to sell products in the consumer marketplace through platforms like Amazon Marketplace. So... Um, it's a really, really unique family business scenario. And I always tell people family business can be really awesome or really terrible. It's very rarely anything in between. Yeah, no, I, uh, I feel that. I mean, right. You know, we're very fortunate that, uh, my, my co-founder and a lot of our businesses is also a family member as, as Luke's, uh, my cousin, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's, it's awesome to be able to, uh, rely on your family, uh, and you know, it, it is an extremely positive experience, especially when he's the smarter one. So you know, I'm the, uh, I'm, I'm the one who's just trying to fit in kind of thing. So, you know, obviously, you know, you talked about the members of the family came in and, you know, you were looking for new ways to kind of expand the business. Why don't you talk a little bit about actually spinning off a company? Because that's, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. You know, normally everybody just thinks that you want that one single company to grow. So at kind yeah. of what point do you decide that, Hey, I need to break this one off? Sure. Sure. Great question. So we, we had a physical product distribution company and the thing we learned pretty quick um, after, originally when we, we got together, we said, oh, let's grow this company. Like you said, that's kind of the default answer for everybody is take your one company and grow it. But in the physical product space, um, your big, big hurdle is cash flow that revolves around inventory growth. So mm -hmm. when you add a new client uh, and you've really got to hold more inventory to support that client, that customer, and we, we found out in a kind of a rude way that we started to grow the business in large chunks and we were hardly making, personally, making any money. Uh, we we're paying our employees. Everybody's busy. Everybody's happy. Uh, you know, but at the end of the year, when the dust settled, all of our money as ownership was wrapped up in inventory growth. So 
it wasn't um there was no like aha moment but we we started to piece it together like hey man if um if we're gonna make a lot of money in the future we we can't just continue to rely on growing a physical products business we should use some of our skills uh and ideas and craft them into uh, other companies that complement the central company so we call it the hub and spokes model so you have the hub company the central company o-ring sales and service um, and we're using their cash flow, uh, kind of we slowed the roll on growing that company, uh, but we're using the cash flow and the landscape and the environment to make complementary businesses that, that are tangential. So they use the same, like our B2C company uses the same supply chain that we already have. We're just buying different products, specking in different products. We use the same warehouse, same personnel, same methodology, but we just have the, kind of the one customer or two customers. That's those, you know, B2C marketplaces. Um, and then Shelfaware, we developed it in in our market. We used our customer base to beta it. We used a complementary product. It helps us sell more product uh, in a more efficient way. And so that, that too is a very tangent company. Um, and it's just worked really, really well. It also gives my brother-in-laws and I opportunities to, to grow and lead something independently. So we're able now to to work together and stay happy with each other because we're staying in our own lanes. So I'm, I'm passionate, more passionate about the startup side of things and plowing new ground and taking new territory. I'm very much the out front guy. And so I was a natural fit to run and pursue shelf aware. Uh, I have another brother, Jay, who's extremely analytical. So he was wonderful for the Amazon marketplace because the rules change on that like all the time. And so yeah. he's constantly analyzing, are we making money or is Jeff Bezos just taking us to the cleaners? And so uh, he was great fit for that. So he runs, he runs that company. And then my other two brothers, I have a brother-in-law that's a mechanical engineer. So he's kind of taken over the sales and biz dev role at the product company that's selling a very highly engineered product. Perfect for him. My last brother-in-law, Adam, he runs O-Ring kind of as a general manager. He doesn't like to get out there. He's much more the introvert. So it's perfect for him. So it's not only provided us with great opportunities to grow revenue in a differentiated way, made us more bulletproof. Uh, but it's also given us all avenues to express our passions and interests in different ways. So, I, I mean, if you, have, if you own a family business and you're working with your family, I highly recommend this, this hub and spokes model. And then when it came to developing these companies and these ideas, we, we take an approach, we kind of call it, I call it money ball in, uh, innovation, but it's basically incremental innovation uh, that starts with a heavy emphasis on, on analytics. And what I mean by that is we were coming up with tools, internal efficiency tools, little pieces of software, small little applications that were helping our warehouse guys be more efficient. Uh, and early on, my oldest brother-in-law, Adam, developed a whole series of analytics that helped us analyze if these innovations were beneficial or if we were just tearing up a process and putting more complexity that was unnecessary and wasn't beneficial. So we had a very um, analytical approach to rolling out these innovations. It would help us realize quickly if there was any return on our investment, if the, the process was better or worse, we'd make quick pivots and changes to it. And um, we use this kind of incremental innovation approach to slowly roll out a long series of internal innovations. Uh, many of those were wildly successful, uh, set the stage for us to roll out our first big external innovation, which was shelf aware. And then external innovation is just one that you take outside of your company, leaving your four walls, and it's going to interact with other businesses, which open up kind of like Pandora's box to variables that you never anticipated. There's a lot mm -hmm. more data security involved, uh, a lot more data storage, a lot more legality. So it's not something, launching an external innovation is not something you want to do right out of the gate. 
a series of small internal innovations really helped us prepare for the launch of the external. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Cause I think that also ties into like the general approach to setting goals almost, um, you know, where you just, I mean, sure you can have that like massive milestone at the end, but like if you're just blindly chasing that, you're not effectively going to get there, which is why you need those small incremental goals. You know, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier when we, when you were kind of laying out the hub and spoke model. And I, w- I want to get back to the um, Moneyball innovation in a second. But, you know, obviously with the leadership and the family, everybody is in an area right now that they're content with. But let's say as the company continues to progress, you guys want to add a new spoke. What does that process look like if everybody is is happy and content where they are right now? Um, well, I don't even know. Um, our process is always start with lunch. So if, if anybody wants to do anything radical or new, we have a great idea. We typically kind of throw out a text. Uh, we still include my dad. Um, he's still, I, I wouldn't call him active daily, but he's certainly active in the management and the long-term vision of, of these companies. Um, and so we still include him in the conversation. Most likely we would get together, have lunch, discuss the pros and cons, um, and, and try and roll it out in a small way, manage it internally, probably not hire out any management of it initially. And then, of course, apply our analytical um, tools to see if it's a good idea or not. Test the waters a bit. So we're, we're very much like homegrown, organic methodology, slow, methodical. Um, Shelfware is a high-tech company in a low-tech landscape that we could have sold many times between, you know, founding and now. So mm-hmm. we, we started, we launched it in Shelfware as an idea in 15, made huge waves in the, our little industry. Been approached many times to sell it, but we're, we're, we just think that there's a lot of merit and going kind of against the grain, not taking massive money and throwing it at it and just slowly, methodically growing it, managing it. And if we sell it, then what the heck else are we going to do? So we'd probably look at it in very much the same light as our previous innovations and do it ourselves test it. If it had merit, I mean, I don't know. If we weren't interested in keeping it attached to the hub, well, there's nothing saying we couldn't sell it or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. No. And I, I mean, I think a lot of companies kind of go through something similar where they kind of come up with an idea. Maybe they determine that, Hey, like this business is viable in its own, but not necessarily needing to be a part of this company. And, and I feel like a lot of people kind of, kind of sell that off. Going back to the Moneyball um, innovation side of it, you know, you, you laid out that all of the uh, family members have their own unique skills as well. Mm-hmm. So did the analytical approach, kind of that foundation to the Moneyball side, did was that a natural fit or did you kind of have to start to shift people's mindsets to get them to play the role um, needed in order to get the analytics kind of flowing? Yeah, great question. Um, for, for us, you could say we got lucky or, or we were just blessed, but um, it happened naturally uh, because of the people involved. So my two brother-in-laws, Jay and Adam, they're, they're very much um, the, the kind of cold calculating type at, at times. I don't mean cold in like a bad way, but they always look at the numbers first. I'm very emotionally driven. So if I think it's a great idea, I'm going to do it. And, Same. and you know, I, I just start sprinting towards that goal. And, you know, they tell me, hey, you're going the wrong direction. Oh, shoot. So they're good. We needed them. And we got lucky to have them early on, or we probably would have spun uh, the wheels of our bus in the wrong direction at, at my guidance, at my lead many, many times. So we just kind of lucked into it. I teach this methodology now. And so I tell people like, if you don't have that mix, you need to go out and find it. And the first place to look is internal. So try and look at your current employee base. Um, Look at folks who've got a lot of experience, know your company and your marketplace really well. 
and give them a personality test. And if you haven't done that for all your key management, you probably should anyway. It's a great assessment. And what we're going to do with the personality tests and, and my actually, we got blessed and lucky to have the right mix, but we also went through this process. We took um, an Enneagram study, if you ever heard of the Enneagram, mm-hmm. kind of assigns numbers to your personality. Um, but what we liked about it is it highlights what you're bad at. And a lot of skills and assessments, you know, people are left with all the positives. Oh, I'm really great at this, that, and the other. But what we needed to know, because you kind of know what everybody's good at anyway, yeah. we needed to really understand what Peyton was really terrible at. So we didn't give a lot a lot of expectations, <laughs> you know, to to like certain areas that you weren't going to either enjoy, you're not passionate about it, you're naturally a bad fit at it. So we, we took the Enneagram and then um, we actually read each other's results over lunch to one another, you know, so I'd pick up the, the test results and say, look, okay, here we go. I'm going to read Adams. And so I would read about Adam and we'd all laugh and chuckle and say, yeah, that's pretty spot on. He's terrible at that, but yeah, he's really good at that. Once we understood what everybody's bad at, you know, we could better stay in our lanes uh, and approach things more analytically. Um, And that was a necessary beginning was first analyzing our personalities and analyzing who we were and, and then we constructed um, a series of analytics, really just pulling from our own company internal data through Microsoft SQL, uh, made some reporting tools that were automated. So they were trigger and alert driven reports. Uh, and then we would sometimes make some custom analytical tools just to look at one aspect of something we rolled out in shipping or an aspect of something we rolled out in the kit room or um, new piece of software. So... That was, that was our approach. I would say, um, again, there was never any like aha moment for us. We didn't really, until looking back, realize, wow, hey, we took a great approach. But it was honestly because we were blessed with a good mix of personalities that, that took, a, took the right approach. Yeah. And, you know, with, with industrial manufacturing, there, there are a lot of numbers in play. And, you know, we talked uh, before we started recording about, um, you know, you guys launching a new ERP system that probably gave you some really good insight and some data. What if you are working for a company or, or you know, own a company that maybe doesn't have as clear cut, um, you know, inventory, analytics changing? How can you kind of use the Moneyball approach to more um, like a f- more philosophical based company. I don't necessarily know if that's the right word, but you know, you, digital, you're not seeing digital pro- company. Yeah. Like a digital company. Exactly. So yeah. how can you kind of implement the Moneyball approach to something like that? All right. So first you get your core team of innovators. Uh, if it's not family ownership, then it's, you know, an owner finding a key uh, group of managers with a unique skill set. very different yep. people. So you need your analytical guy. You need your dreamer like me, guy that's full of shit. Those are, I play an important part. Uh, in this process, you, you put together your team and you give them a big budget, not of money, but a big budget of time. That's that's probably what takes the most is tons of time yeah. to do this approach. So these these folks are going to have to like lock themselves in a room, get to know one another, get to know their own skill sets, what they're really all bad at. And then they're going to have to look at the company in an honest light and say, what's the company really terrible at? Um, I think too often people swing for the fences. The money ball approach is not about home runs. It's about base hits. Yep. So that small team then is going to line out their first couple base hits. Uh, those base hits are going to be something pretty rudimentary. Maybe it's a, a paperless system in the front office. Okay, hey, we can't be pushing all this paper around. It's inefficient, and we we can't pull anything from it. So we need to come up with a, a, a maybe a document server, a digital document server that has searchable PDFs. Uh, maybe another one is just cre- creating um, some process automation around some of their bottlenecks in the warehouse. Uh, or in their front office, or um, 
you know, between two different departments, like in our world, we have the warehouse and the front office, they always have to go back and forth with information. So perhaps we create some automated processes there. They set up their first couple innovation uh, base hits and they try and execute them as fast as they can and then measure the results. They're going to have a couple winners and a couple losers, or maybe they, they're all winners. That's great. Uh, and then they just move on with some more base hits that slowly move them around you know, the bases using the baseball analysis. Now they, they've made it to first base. Now they're going to go to second base and third base. Um, many of their early innovations are probably going to be creating some of those analytical tools. And I think even if you have an archaic ERP system, that's fine. You can tap into that, that ERP systems database in the back end and just run your own analytics, uh, mirror a server, um, use Microsoft SQL, Visual Basics, some really easy Java code, and you can create your own reporting tools. The home run that people swing and miss at a lot is just trying to buy that fancy ERP, MRP that's going to solve all their problems and then hire an outside firm to implement it. That's like the number one mistake I think I've watched all of my friends in the industry make and I'm out, you know, screaming, don't do that. You know, number one, the generic, giant, fancy, shiny ERP isn't going to solve all your problems. It's also wildly expensive and they're generic. So they're they're not going to necessarily be a perfect fit for all the nuances in your company. You're better off buying the cheapest ERP system you can that uses something fairly open source on the back end, like Microsoft SQL, uh, that you can manipulate on your own. And then you get the basic foundational ERP, and then through the Moneyball approach, you can start bolting on your own little specialized tools that make that ERP much more efficient uh, and, and augment it and, and you know complement it. Uh, that's the better approach. But it takes hard work to do that, to make that approach. Uh, it takes time. And yeah. so a lot of people don't want to get their hands dirty and don't want to take the time. They just think the easy buttons just cut a check for, you know, half a million dollars and hope it works. Yeah. No. Well, from my uh, from my experience working at Oracle, um, I was I was specifically more on the on the enterprise level, so big companies, two billion plus. But a lot of those companies actually kind of took more of the internal homegrown approach, where they created these extremely complex spreadsheets. Um, you know, specifically, I worked with configure price quotes software CPQ, but they would create these really intricate um, spreadsheets that would work really well for them. And actually we had trouble working with them because their setup was so, you know, specific to their niche. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to apply this. Now, obviously this software was highly configurable and you could do a lot of stuff with it. But at the end of the day, sometimes we weren't matches for those companies. But that also takes me into the question of, you know, as you're building a company and you're creating these tools, how do you prepare for scale at the same time though, because obviously as you're going through and you're, you know, creating these tools that work for you right now, how do you keep one eye on the future so you don't pigeonhole yourself or, or get stuck or, you know, have a bad foundation when things really start to take off? Yeah. Great. Another great question. I, I don't have a great answer for that one. Um, you know, we were, we were a, we're small company. So when we started this process, we we're like three and a half million in revenue and about 20 employees. And we, I don't know that we ever sat down and thought, what? What if? What if, you know, we had a we had a vague plan. We called it the 15-15-15 plan. Um, and it was, it was three, three criteria we were aiming towards 15. We wanted to grow to 15 million in revenue with 15 people and keep our distribution company inside 15,000 square feet. So, the, the first criteria was a, you know, obviously a revenue number, which everybody always, that's always what people throw out as their ambition. The yeah. next two numbers though, were, were criteria that limited uh, growth in other areas, basically limited the growth of our overhead and complexity 
So we, we were basically trying to hint at we wanted to be a very efficient $15 million company uh, by limiting our square footage and limiting our people. And that was, that was as, as complicated as we got for the big vision. I don't know that you need to get a whole lot more complicated on our scale um, because even at $15 million, you're not a large company. Um, you're still you're still a very small, medium-sized company at best. So I, I don't know. I, I think it depends. That type of a big, complicated vision and, and structuring it and worried about and getting too worried about you know scaling out of it is probably a conversation for the larger enterprises to have. Mm-hmm. You know, to have the opportunity to go from fifty million to three hundred million, you know, or, or some kind of a scale like that. But from from like for all the small business people out there, especially the entrepreneurs, if it's like a one or two man operation, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, the software that you're using today, even Excel, is wildly scalable. You know, you can make pivot tables with hundreds of thousands of rows in them, and Excel's happy. Yeah, and you yep. don't even have to worry about going to Access or you know SQL. Um, so you can build stuff that's very, fairly scalable, and and you can go from five people to hundred people. And I think you could probably use the software tools you built for five. Um, yeah. and, and that's not to say that I, we're always like constantly tweaking the tools we've developed. So they're always changing. And we've certainly scrapped some of them, even in the last five years. Uh, we've taken a couple of our tools that just don't work for us now. For whatever reason, you know, variables change and we pitch them and we just recreate new ones. But we usually start with some sort of a foundation of the old one. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my, my answer to that is if you're small enough, don't worry about scale. Don't make your vision too complex. Make it pretty simple. Uh, make home plate in your baseball analogy. Going back to that, make it pretty simple. We want to grow. I mean, we want to be efficient in our growth because and you want to get there. Yeah, and we want to get there. So we got to start moving. So you you can't. A lot of companies get stuck planning, you know, and thinking about all the what ifs. And at some point, you just got to say to hell with it. Like we're going to just get our hands dirty. We're going to start tomorrow, and we're going to tear some stuff up. And that yeah. In our story, that my brother-in-law Jay, he's the expert at that. He loves to go into a process that's pretty crappy. Everybody knows it, but it's complex. So nobody wants to like work on it. His mm-hmm. method was just burn it to the ground. So he would like destroy a process, then walk into the office and be like, hey, we're not doing this anymore. I destroyed it. You know, we're done. We're done. We're never doing that again. And we're like, well, what are we going to do? And he would put us in a position to just have to create a solution immediately because he had just kiboshed you know, our current <laughs> process. So sometimes that's thing. just, you know, you need that guy that just burns it all down and you're like, okay, great. Now I got to build something like now quick. So. Yeah. No. And, but you know, also I think something that's really big and we, we talk about it a lot on, on this channel is the failure side of it because there's a lot of learning opportunities that yeah. come, that come from it. So, you know, do you have any examples um, of, of a failure that you guys went through, either you as an individual or maybe, you know, part of the business, uh, but Ultimately, it led to something much greater. You guys pulled away an extremely valuable lesson out of it. Yeah, I have a good one. Um, we were we were in this Moneyball innovation process and had several successful internal innovations under our belt. Uh, and we got to, we're rounding the bases and we got to another innovation project. And it was an interesting bottleneck in our warehouse where we, um, we buy a lot of small parts in bulk. So we'd buy 10,000 of some little widget and then our business model is we sell it to, to manufacturers in smaller quantities. And so we'd buy 10,000 O-rings, break them down into packages of 50 or 100 or 200. Uh, and, but those packages have to be broken down in pretty precise numbers because we're shipping that product to a manufacturer that's gonna, hoping to assemble 100 motors. So if you ship them 95 O-rings, he's pretty mad because 
they got to like stop and find five more, you know, to complete their process. So we have to accurately break down and count really small parts. To do that historically in our space, we've always used counting scales. These are pretty rudimentary uh, weigh scales. They're very accurate, but you have to do a sample count process. So you throw like 100 parts on the scale and then you tell the scale, hey, I threw 100 parts on you. And then the scale's little brain thinks and says, okay, each part weighs one gram. So 100 grams total. So, okay, now I know what the part weighs. Um, you can throw more parts on me. So then the counting scale will start, start counting the rest of the product based on weight mm-hmm. after you've programmed the initial piece weight using that sample counting process. Those scales hadn't changed in forever. And we said, this is a terrible bottleneck. It takes our warehouse and shipper guys, you know, um, at least five minutes apart to break down and, and reprogram those scales and program that sample count. So we went out in the scale industry, looked at the scale industry and said, there's got to be a scale that can store piece weights, like thousands of them. Well, there wasn't. There was a scale that could store like 100 piece weights internally. So we said, this is stupid. We shouldn't even be using internal scale memory. We should be storing these piece weights in our ERP. We need a scale that's networkable, like a scale we can pop on our our network and a scale that will talk to our database and talk to a user interface. Didn't exist. So long story short, we invented a smart counting scale that interfaces with the shipper through a mobile app. What we really screwed up was we used an outside contractor who, was, who knew the scale industry because my brother-in-law was writing all the software, but he didn't know the binary language that the, the scale communicated in internally. So mm. we found this guy in the scale industry who knew that, that language, and he wrote this really small piece of code for us, but he was also in the scale distribution. He sold scales. So we bring him out to Kansas City, where we're based out of, and we rolled out our smart counting scale to him. He didn't really know what he's a part of. Because we were just having him write little chunks of code. And, what are you guys doing? He was real curious. Can I come out and see it? And, yeah, come on. So we brought him to our warehouse. We're like, dude, check this out. We made a smart counting scale. You use this mobile phone, scan this QR code. Then you pull your product, scan the QR code there, load the piece weight from our database, talks to SQL, talks to the app again. Boom, just dump the parts. We were saving like five minutes per line, um, per shipment, you know, per day. It totaled up to like we were saving like five or six man hours in the warehouse every day. That's big. Yeah, it's huge. So it allowed us to, again, grow and scale the company, but not add more shippers. So we could get new customers, ship more lines of product, and not add more people in the warehouse. Well, we brought this guy in, and we we didn't sign. This is where we learned something about external innovations. This was an innovation that we had initially set out just to make our internal more efficient, but we had ultimately created a device that had very great use application throughout the marketplace. Everybody could have used this thing. It was an external innovation, and we could have spun it into it Basically, our first startup. Hey, let's let's produce these smart counting scales in mass, market them, sell them on e-com, and just blow up that market. Like we could take over the world by storm with a smart counting scale. Well, I we didn't think that far ahead, and we didn't even know what we were doing, and we didn't know we had created anything great. And so we brought the scale guy in. He saw how great it was, and he walked away, and started started his well sold sold the whole technology to um, a scale company, and they they came out with the first the market's first smart counting scale built around built around our system. So that was a, a brutal lesson in intellectual property ownership and uh, being a little more forward thinking when you're planning an external innovation that's going to touch other companies and other other aspects of a market. So you need to be a, a little bit more cautious there. We should have had an agreement in place. We should have had plans. We shouldn't have brought them in to show the whole thing off. And, you know, we're just solving problems and just hammering it out. So we learned a lot of valuable lessons about all of that and helped us launch Shuffleware <laughs> in a much more organized fashion uh, and take a lot of those considerations uh, and, into play before, you know, letting the whole world know that we had really done something cool. 
Yeah. And I think, uh, I think a lot of startup uh, founders can, can probably, you know, understand and, and agree with the, like the whole idea of, uh, of a stealth rollout and how important that is sometimes, because when you, when you think of something really, really cool, uh, you definitely don't want to share it to the wrong person, even though uh, they might bring a skill in that you need to help uh, finish off the product. And that's something that uh, that we are cognizant of in uh, in our industry and, and the way we're going. And, and we still talk about our product very vaguely on here for that exact reason that we don't mm-hmm. uh, necessarily want to uh, you know drop a, a recording that's out on the internet for everybody to see yeah. uh, at the wrong time. So we are very careful with what we say. But um, you know, I. You know, I, I love it when, when, when people have stories like that and, and getting to hear that, um, you know, that was a failure that, you know, you guys kind of experienced, but it helps more people than, than just yourself. So I think that, that, you know, when, when you have an experience like that, it's important once you've overcome it and, and gotten to a, to, to a good place to, to share it because other people might not make the same mistake. And, and that's kind of what this whole community is all about is, is helping each other. So I really appreciate that story. Andrew, the, the last question that I like to ask every single guest uh, that comes on is it's just an open-ended and everybody has a different answer, but at its core, it's the exact same. Simply, why are you an entrepreneur? I'm an entrepreneur because, well, for a lot of reasons, but I like risk. I like taking risks. Um, I don't mind losing and failing. I think it's all fun and fascinating. I like to be out in front. Um, more recently, I've kind of spun my passions into a desire to help the U.S. manufacturing industry innovate. I want to see the U.S. continue to be the world leader in manufacturing, and we've gotten way off path over the last couple decades. We've got a, a lot of work to do to modernize our infrastructure and create that manufacturing culture that we once had. And I want to be a part of, of that process, you know, help my, my industry out, uh, help them innovate, help them make faster progress. Uh, so that's really where my, my passions lie today, um, from a bigger picture, but yeah. I love, I love the risk side of it because I agree. It's, it's, uh, they're all calculated risks though, right? You know, you have to, at least the, the good entrepreneurs think through uh, the risk that they're taking and, you know, you're going to make kind of going back to the uh, base hit approach. <laughs> there's a, a lot of micro risks that you have to take and that lead up to, uh, to the overall risk. But uh, if you do it the right way, you can definitely kind of hedge your bets a little bit. So it's, yes, uh, yep. it's an important, it's an important skill, but Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on today. If people want to learn more about you, uh, follow what you're doing, learn more about shelf aware, where can they find you? Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn and I'm always game for networking. So if you have an idea, uh, look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a really common name. So Andrew Johnson, supply chain innovator, type that whole thing in and then you'll find me. Um, and the other way you can learn about Shelfware is you can, you can go to our website. It's Shelfware VMI as in vendor managed inventory.com. So shelfwarevmi.com or go to YouTube and search Shelfware, all one word, and you'll find our YouTube channel where we have a whole bunch of short clips and videos that do tell about our technology, how we're doing it, how we're innovating B2B supply chains. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, guys, Uh, if you want to continue this discussion, follow us on our social media, our Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebooks will all be in the description of this episode. Hop on there, shoot us a DM, hit us up with whatever concerns, questions, comments that you guys have. We'd love to continue building that community on there. Next, subscribe to wherever you're listening to this, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Overcast, you name it, we got it. 
And the only other thing I'm going to add is as you're subscribing to those platforms, hop on there, give us rates and reviews, especially on Apple podcasts, five-star ratings and a, uh, and, and a comment go a really long way, helps us continue to, to climb up the charts and you know continue to, to spread this to, to all corners of the world and allow us to continue to bring on great guests. We really appreciate you guys for everything and we're excited to see you next week.